right. Well, I've got a couple announcements as well. The ones that need some pastoral guilt behind them to get you to actually come out. So uh, just a couple things for you to be aware of. Um, Tonight we have our church business meeting to call Jay Tilly as our uh, next uh, children's director. I know it's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be mid-60s and et cetera. It's not going to send a great message to Jay if we have like 22 here tonight, right? It's like, you know, that kind of thing. So I want to encourage you to plan your afternoon, come out, join us at 6. If you don't ask too many questions, you can go to Rhoda Springs afterwards, and you can take advantage of that, right, because they stay open till 9. So uh, come out and join us tonight at 6 o'clock to be a part of that. Um, a couple of other things. There, there is a work day coming up next Saturday, so that's from 8.30 till noon. Uh, wheelbarrows, rakes, shovels, gloves, that kind of stuff. We just really want to clean up the property, get it looking right so it looks great for, for Easter as people come. You know, God gave us a big piece of property, gives us lots of room to grow, lots of elbow room, but it also takes a lot of work to keep it going. So come out and join us next week at 8.30. And then um, the other thing is way down into the summer, um, but I know a lot of you, if you haven't already, you need to be putting in for vacation time. We are scheduled to go down to the Groton Bible Church in Groton, Connecticut, to help build their building this summer like we had folks come and join us in the summer of 2005 when we built this building. So that is the week of, it, usually you go down on the 14th, that's the Sunday, and you worship with them, and then we work mo- Monday through Friday noontime. Groton, Connecticut's just a couple of hours away, so if you can only go you know, Wednesday, Thursday, you can just travel down or whatever. The, the hotel is literally a half mile from where the church is. If cost is a factor, it's not an issue. Just We'll take care of all of that, that kind of thing. We'd love for you to be able to go and be a part of that. And we need all skill levels. In fact, if we need some folks to, to man or staff the kitchen, if you will, mid-morning snack, make lunch, mid-afternoon snack, that kind of stuff, um, we need some folks to do that. We need people to, I uh, think we're a primary task we hope to be on is laying tile, so if you have like a kitchen to do, you can go down there, you can make all your mistakes on their building, and then you can come home and you can do it right. So that'll be coming up this July. You'll see some more information coming about all of that, but wanted you to get it out on your, on your radar. And as you swing by to sign up for the vigil, the last two weeks of our devotion plan are out there on this reading plan. We've worked through the four pillars of God's story in, the way, uh, in terms of God's plan, our problem, God's remedy, and our response. And, and so we're going to start just in and reading the last couple of weeks of the life of Christ. So I encourage you to grab one of those as you sign up for the prayer vigil. So now to dig into our word for today. You know, um, we've been in the Gospel of Mark since October. And we've got three more weeks left. This week, next week, and the week after. And, um, and as one of the things we've noticed in the Gospel of Mark so far is that Mark has been really hard on the disciples. When, when, it, when he's sitting there and he's writing at God's inspiration, he has not hesitated just to show how dense the disciples really are, right? And, you're gonna, and, and part of what you're going to get is that he's getting all these memories from Peter. And Peter's looking back and saying, man, was I stupid, right? You know, because, you know, every time Jesus tells a parable, they're like, we don't understand. Will you explain it to us, right? Every single time Jesus, you know, they, they're... He's up in the mountain being transfigured. He comes down, and, and they can't even cast out a demon, right? They're, they're struggling to understand what it really means to be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches them not once, not twice, but three times, and they still don't get it, right? And every single time he starts talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all they can think of is, all right, we're finally going to get our seats 
of influence in the kingdom, right? And, and they, they never get it right, right? But in chapter 14, in a backhanded kind of way, Mark pays the disciples a compliment, right? So grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Like I said, it's a backhanded type of compliment, right? If you're using one of your Bibles that's underneath your seat, our text today is on page 860, 860. We're going to really cover all of chapter 14 today, though the Lord's Supper piece, we're really going to kind of set the, the exploration of its meaning away to next week. And, and, and many churches call it the Eucharist because the Greek word for thanks, Jesus gave thanks and broke or gave thanks for the cup. That word is actually the word from which we derive Eucharist. And so it's called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion because it celebrates. We're going to set all that aside because the meaning of that really comes out in the death of Christ, which we're going to look at next week, right? So, but we're going to look at the rest of chapter 14 today. But let me start off in the middle, all right? So Mark chapter 14, 860, one of your pew Bibles. And, and here, here's, I want to start out in the middle, right? Look at chapter 17, verse 17 with me. So, and then we'll back up and look at the rest of this, right? So, all through the Gospels, all through Mark, you know, Peter's just been saying, man, we didn't get that, we didn't get that, we messed this up, we failed at that, we didn't understand this, whatever. And then he gets to this one moment, right, in Mark chapter 14, and when he says, when evening came, he arrived with the 12. So they're arriving at the place where they're going to experience the Lord's Supper, And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, I assure you, some of your translations say truly, truly, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and say to him one by one, right? Not just Judas, who we know is going to mess up in just a couple more verses, right? You know, it's not just Judas, but one by one, right? And so every single one of them was smart enough to recognize that even though they didn't want to, they didn't plan to, they had the capacity to desert Jesus. So that's a backhanded compliment. They were smart enough to recognize how dumb they were, right? (laughs) So they're sitting around this room, and every single one of them, from Peter, James, John, right on down the list, they're, they're saying, it's not me. Is it going to be me? And they weren't sure. Because when they looked inside of themselves, they had this recognition that they didn't plan to, they didn't want to, they didn't desire to, but they also understood that they could because it was somehow scripted into who they were. And it's that thought today that I want to use to unlock the meaning as we develop some increased understanding of what Mark chapter 14 says to us. Because I think one of the very important things for you and I to understand as followers of Jesus Christ is what are the sources, what, what is the morrow, right? What are the origins of the things that lead us to abandon our faith, to reject our faith, to desert Christ, right? And, and, the, it, and really, in many ways, we're not going to do justice to all of them. But when you look at this passage of Scripture and the dynamics that are taking place, you see many of these that are at work. And I think from this, we can glean the things that should put us in the same position as the disciples saying, man, surely it's not I. I know it could be me. I don't want it to be me. It could be me, but I don't want it to be me. And as we recognize where we can fall, 
it can help us to present, prevent ourselves from falling. So with that, let's, look, let's work our way through chapter 14, just one step at a time. And I want to start out with just the first couple of verses and then do a little bit of explanation, and then we'll see, um, and, and then I'll bring out our point for us. So after two days, it was the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Those were two, the, the, they had, the Passover celebrated the night that they left Egypt the unleavened bread, which was a seven-day experience, remembered the fact that they left They left in such a hurry that all they could take was bread that hadn't been leavened, right? So all they had was saltines with them, right? You know, that kind of idea. And so it was designed to re- help them remember the deliverance that God had had and how he had led them out and provided for them as they left. So after two days, it was the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a treacherous way to arrest and to kill him. Not during the festival, they said, or, they may, or there may be rioting among the people. So, so here at the very beginning, you see that the chief priests and the scribes have finally said, you know, well, we're not going to trick him into some kind of an answer, like we've seen in chapters 12 and 13, they're doing over and over again. We're not going to trick him where the crowd's going to turn on him and we're going to be able to arrest him in broad daylight. So we've got to find our way somehow to get our hands on him without creating a riot. And the way they're going to do that eventually is they're going to get, Judas is going to open up the door and they're going to go arrest Jesus at night in the quiet. Part of the reason was because Jerusalem was packed with people during the Passover. Some people said that, that the, the, the population of Jerusalem swelled by four times during the Passover. It was only in the temple that you could actually slay a Passover land. So if you wanted to observe the Passover, you really needed to go to Jerusalem. And most people wanted to do that at least once in their lifetime, if not a number of times, right? So with that, it just swelled. And so there was the potential for it to be a real fire keg. And what we're going to see, this, they're going to bring this to fruition later in chapter 14. And, and they arrest Jesus, and they bring him to the, to the uh, home of the high priest. And they're asking all these kinds of questions. They're getting all this testimony, and it's, the testimony is contradicting one another. So they really don't have a case to stand on, but they just, they just fabricate a case, right? And they carry out exactly what they're going to do. And now, here, here's, here's one of the places where we see the, the origins, the morrow, Right? That, you know, of, of rejection, of abandonment of our faith. And that's simply just to flat out refuse to believe. Right? And some of us know people like that. We've witnessed the people like that. Some of us are those people. You know, at the end of the day, we just refused to believe. I don't care what I see, I don't care what I hear, I don't care any of that kind of stuff. This is what I believe, and everything else is just going to go. And, and you can see a couple of things coming out of this, right? You know, um, and, and hopefully we don't have anybody in, in here this morning that's in this place, but you know, part of where their problem is that the reason they didn't believe is because what God was doing did not meet their expectations. They had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. The Messiah was supposed to be somebody who rose up to the religious uh, things. He was going to be this conqueror that threw off the Romans, established the glory, all that kind of stuff, and not some Galilean who doesn't fit into their system, you know, who's, who's doing miracles and criticizing them. That, that, didn't, that didn't fit their model at all. And so they're saying, we already know what God's activity is supposed to look like. 
and therefore you don't fit it, so we just refuse to believe. Right? And sometimes that happens, right? How many times have you said, you know, you people say, I, I can't believe that there is a God because just look at all the evil in the world. Because the good God does not meet their expectations, and therefore they refuse to believe. And you just see that, 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 that comes out, right? And, and you could really begin to tickle this along in a lot of different ways, right? Um, I, I think what was going on there and it extends very much over to here. The, the way they reached the decision to have Jesus executed was it just seemed to make sense. Right? If we let him keep going, he's going to gather all the people in Jerusalem. There's going to be this big uprising. The Romans are going to come in and crush us like a bug, and we're going to lose the whole nation. So it just seems to make sense that one guy should die instead of all of us. Human reason over divine revelation. You see that dynamic going on today? And, and I'm not saying that we should check our brains at the door. I think actually believers ought to be the smartest people on the planet. You know, we, we ought to take this mind that God's given us as a gift and do everything we can to develop it. But when we start using our mind to reject what God has already showed to us and spoken to us and what God has already done, we're in a place where we're just refusing to believe. And that can be partmentalized. It doesn't have to be just universal in terms of our faith as a whole. But there can be an aspect where we say, you know what, I believe God in all this area, but you take this part, I forget it. I just don't believe that stuff. And we just set it aside. Refusal to believe. I, 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 I don't want to get stuck there because then we'll be here too long. All right. Look at verses 3 through 11 with me. So while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives... Across from the temple complex. Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be very relevant to a point I'm going to make a little later in my message. Here we go. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who was a leper, had a serious sin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came, and we know from John chapter 12, this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, right? She comes with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. Nard was um, something that was extracted from a root. It was primarily found in India. It just seemed to be one of those things that was really prized in the ancient world, right? And so, um, so it's, it's really it's this pure and expensive fragrant oil, right? So she broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Now, we know from John 12 that Judas was the ringleader, but he was not by himself in this. The disciples were looking around saying, what is she doing? That's, that's poor stewardship, right? Why has, it this, why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, 300 denarii is about the annual wages of a guy who works six days a week. This is a common laborer, right? In other words, minimum wage. So this is like a $20,000 bottle of perfume, right? So they got a case, right? You know, And the Passover is the season where you're really supposed to take care of the poor. That was one of the emphases. Imagine you know, if, if, if at one of our church functions, somebody showed up with a $20,000 bottle of wine and broken it open for us. 
right? Well, first of all, we're Baptists, and that probably wouldn't happen anyways, but, you, you know, <laughs> at least not inside of the four walls, right? You know, but, and, and I, this, this past summer, and don't, we were in the New Hampshire liquor store. We don't spend a lot of time in the New Hampshire liquor store, right? But we were traveling up, and right, the people who were with us, we went in, and they had bottles of scotch that were almost $20,000, and I asked a guy, a friend of ours, a guy we know, he, he worked for them. He said, the only people who really buy that are from, like, Japan and China. He said, but they sell them. A $20,000 bottle of scotch, right? You know? Anyways, expensive bottle of perfume, right? And they're saying, you know what? We could have sold this. Think of all the poor people we could have helped. They got a point, right? They got a point. Let's keep reading. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. I wonder if I've ever done a noble thing for Christ. I wonder if you've ever done a noble thing for Christ. He says, you always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you don't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. And you see it in Mark. You see it in John. (laughs) Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to hand him over to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and they promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, here's another source. And I'm going to borrow some language from some other places, but I think it really applies to us. One of the ways where you and I We'll find the, the experience, the origin, the, the, the marrow that leads to us deserting our faith in Christ is when we let the good become the enemy of the best. Now let that sink in for a minute. When we let the good become the enemy of the best. Let me ask you a question. Is it a good thing to take care of the poor? It's a good thing, right? In fact, it's one of the things the Scripture encouraged, right? It's a good thing to do, right? And these guys are saying, hey, you know what? Why don't we just sell this and take the 300 denarii and just feed a mass of people? Why don't we do good with this? But you see, in this particular place, the good was the enemy of the best, which was anointing Christ in preparation for his burial. It was a noble thing. There are many experiences in your and I's faith journey where we let the good become the enemy for the best, right? And it is, you know, we could run all over the place with this, and I don't want to spend all that time with that, but... There, there are all kinds of ways where we let what the good, the, even some of the blessings that God's given us, we let those become competitors for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We take the good and we let them become the enemy of the best. You know, just let me pull out some examples, right? And, and th- this can go much deeper than this. I'm just going to try to get some of, the, some of the surface things. But, you know, one of the things I've confronted before in my ministry and working with families, you have people there, you know, they're, they're getting connected, they're, they're growing, they're, they're, they're spiritually alive, they're developing and et cetera. And then some things change. And, and then one of the things I've heard from people is that, you know, the only day of the week that both my husband and I are off to spend a full day with the family is with the kids on Sunday. 
other words, one of us is working Monday through Saturday all the time. So the only time we can really be together as a family is on Sunday. So we do family things rather than going to church. Now, it's not a bad thing to spend time as a family, is it? Right? Not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God gave you the family, right? But somewhere along the that, that leads to a train wreck in their faith. And I've seen it happen over and over again. The enemy of the best is the good. Family's good. You know, you see here the same argument. It's like, you know what, what I, I got to take care of the financial needs of my family, so I'm working two jobs, I'm working three jobs, and I just don't have any time to do any of this stuff. Right? And taking care of your family, that's a good thing, right? I, I, you know, I, I know Christina doesn't, didn't, wouldn't want to be married to me if I wasn't committed to trying to take care of our family, right? It's a part of it. But there's a way in which we can elevate the good where it be actually becomes the enemy of the best, right? You know, I, I, I've heard people say, you know what, you know, I, 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 and we've had this, you know, my cycling club, we ride on Sunday mornings. And, and, and you know, it's such a stress relief, and it keeps me healthy, and et cetera, and, and so I just can't make it. Now, getting good exercise, not a bad thing. That's a good thing, right? How many of us probably need to get a little bit more than we have been, right? Right? And it's a good thing, but it becomes it. And, and you can just, and you can just take, keep taking that deeper and deeper. You look at these guys. That, their heart's not in the wrong place, but they're letting the good become a barrier to the best. And sometimes when we take the good and let it become what's most important, what's best in our lives, which is the faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, just begins to diminish a little bit. And then it begins to diminish a lot. And then we find ourselves betraying Jesus. You know, and this is just, you know, this teaching is just, this is why Jesus said, you know, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to hate his father and his mother his brother and his sister, his children, even his own self, right? The allegiance to Christ. It's not that we're supposed to actually hate our families. That's so counterintuitive, but he's using that as a con. Our love for Christ is supposed to be at such a level, our faithfulness to God, that in comparison, because the best is always supposed to be way above the good in our lives. All right, keep moving. This is a long passage of scripture that we need to deal with because it, it, it's going to bring a, a lot of stuff in. But so just follow along with me as I, as I read, and I'll try to be in the right chapter this time around. Here we go. Picking up with verse 12. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the, P, the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so we can eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and, and a man carrying a water jug will meet you and follow him. You think, how are they going to recognize one guy out of the swarm of people in Jerusalem who are carrying water jugs? Well, the reason they're going to be able to recognize them is that the women carry the water, not the men. And so if there's a guy carrying a water jug, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. So it's not going to be hard to recognize. Believe it or not, that's actually the truth. <laughs> I'm not making that up. So he says, you're going to see this guy carry. Just follow him. And whenever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where's the guest room for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, and make preparations for us there. So the disciples went out and entered the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. They made the meal. So when the evening came, he arrived with the twelve. 
And when they were reclining at table, this is where we started, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, to eat, to, to eat with, with somebody else was to enter in literally to a sacred bond, right? So, I, you know, I don't even know if I have, a, 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 you know, an example that would make sense today or whatever. But imagine, let me just use a physician. Imagine if, if you go to your wedding, right, and you get married, but at the reception, your best man steals your, steals your bride and runs off. That's exactly what this is like. To sit down and eat a meal with Jesus and then moments later to betray him is like being the best man at somebody's wedding and then stealing their bride within the first hour or two. It's that kind of sacred contract, right? You know, if anybody's supposed to be all in to making the marriage work, it ought to be the best man, right? And, and that's the same kind of idea. So he says, you know, one of you is eating with me, but you're going to betray me. So they're saying, well, surely not I. He said, it's one of the 12, the one who is dipping bread with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So God has his sovereign plan, but man is held responsible for all the choices that we make as a part of that. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So then we have the first Lord's Supper, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over that because we're going to look at it next week. Verse 27, so then Jesus said, all of you will run away because it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said, even if everyone runs away, I certainly will not. Can you imagine him telling this story 30 years later to the people in Rome? You know, just saying, you know what? I was such a blowhard, right? You know, you know, I, I was so full of myself, right? I'm telling him, even if everybody runs away, I'm the one guy who won't. And Jesus says, I assure you, today, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He does that by the end of the chapter. Because this little girl asks him, you're, you're surely one of them, aren't you? He's afraid of a six-year-old. Anyway, I'm kind of making it up just a little bit. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. So then they come to the garden, to a place called Gethsemane, which is the word of, of, that means olive press, right? So this is where in the garden where they grew olives, they would press it into oil and be able to sit it, sell it. And so Jesus tells his disciples, sit here and pray. But he takes Peter, James, and John. His three amigos, the guys who were really supposed to have his back with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. We see the humanity of Jesus coming out. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little further and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him, the hour of suffering, if you will. He said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Take this suffering from away from me. I don't want to taste sin. I don't, I don't want to experience your wrath. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. What you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. He said, Simon, are you sleeping? He asked, couldn't you just stay awake one hour? Now, you know, he's just had a big, huge Passover meal. He's up all day making it. Right? He's tired. It's the middle of the night. He's exhausted, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just it's easy to fall asleep. It's easy to fall asleep. 
Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh, flesh is weak. So he goes away a second time, and he prayed the same thing. And, and he came again, and he found them sleeping a second time because they could, just couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is here. And Judas arrives and betrays him with a kiss. Now, here's... Here's one of the things that we've looked at recently in our devotional study, and one of the things that you and I need to appreciate. Now, we we can just flat out refuse to believe, right? We can do that. We can also take the good and make it more important than our faithfulness to God, and that can derail our faith. But Jesus hits it right on the head here. He says, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We, We can't ever forget, if we're going to be doing noble things for Jesus, that every single one of us has the capacity to really mess it up. We have the capacity just to do a spiritual face plant, right? We're running for the touchdown, there's nobody behind us, whatever, and we just trip over the five-yard line and down, right? Fumble the ball, we can blow it, right? We are susceptible to sin. And many folks, this is where things get derailed in their lives, is out of that system. The spirit is willing. We can have the heart. These guys are sitting around the table saying, I don't want to betray Jesus. That's, you know, surely it's not going to be me. And we're going to see, if you read through the rest of the chapter, that all 12 of them scatter. Judas for one reason, the 11 for another. But they all scatter, right? They, they all do this and because they're susceptible to sin. Now, Specifically, when you look at Judas, and you get more insight from John chapter 12, he was just really in it. He was, a, he was made the group treasurer, right? So his role was to take care of the money of the group. And so part of this, when this all happened with the nard and the 300 denarii and that kind of thing, he just got bent out of shape and he got angry. And, 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 and actually, John is very clear and says he was a thief. He was thinking, man, I could have taken some of that. And nobody would have ever noticed or whatever. And, and, and so all of this is, here's a guy who's walking with Jesus, right? He's seeing the miracles. And he's still taking the other stuff and make it more important, right? And so we have this incredible ability, I think, in our fleshliness to take the gifts of God and allow those to be the reasons why we wander away from God. Right? Here's Judas. He's one of the 12. He's been called. He's heard all the teachings. He's got all the inside stories. He's seen all the miracles. He's got access to the money. And guess what becomes most important to him? The money. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And just a couple of things. I, I think one of the things in, in our own journey, and, and you know, we're... we're you know, you, you, you hate to overgeneralize and whatever and that kind of stuff, but the, the two areas that in our world, right, we, we have in many ways, we have the, the gift of God's blessing, especially material blessings, we've got to a place where we've elevated to that such a place in our lives. We, we are such an affluent people, and it's very easy for us to let the blessing of God in terms of the gifts that we have, the standard of living that we have, become our God rather than following after God. 
Our flesh can seize on the blessing of God and use it in a way that undermines our faith. And, and, and that's what happened with Judas, right? That's what happened with Judas. And, 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 and it can happen to lots of us where we can let, we can let our pursuit of more and, 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 and yet we, and we get to that place and, and yet somehow or another what we have becomes a barrier to actually obeying God, even though we recognize that those are the things that God has given us. You see the dynamic? The other area where we do that is in our sexuality. Sex is one of the greatest gifts that God's given to us, and it's designed to be used as this rich gift in the context of marriage, and we have just marred it all across the way, right? And we've elevated it above everything else and used it as a cause as a st- to, to disobey God. Right, whether it's outside the context of marriage and all kinds of other things, we've just let, and we've we've taken the gift of God, and we've let it become an occasion for the flesh to disobey God. We are susceptible, right? And then there's another way in which this also comes out. It's not just in this area where our, where our flesh is susceptible to sin, our own susceptible. Some of it is when we take the gifts of God and we we say, you know, that's now most important. This is what matters most. This is what we're going to do. But the other is when we let our independence lead us to disobey God. You notice what even Jesus had to pray? You know what, God, I know what I want. As, as man, as one of us, putting on flesh and blood, right, as one of us, he's praying in the garden. He says, God, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to sin for the first time in eternity. I don't want to experience your wrath because I know what it's going to be like. I don't want any of that. Zero. And God, if there's a way for you to take this away from me, I'm on board. Sign me up. (laughs) Right? You know, if there's any way for this cup to pass, I want it to go. And even Jesus had to pray, but not what I want, what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. And and I got to tell you, we're not going to deal with this susceptibility to sin if we're not constantly saying, God, it's not what I want, it's got to be what you want. It's not what I want, it's got to be what you want, right? And, and you just got to do that, right? So, so susceptibility to sin. The, the next one I want to point out to you comes out in verse 27. Jesus said, all of you are going to run away because it's written, I strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. One of the reasons why you and I will, will mess up in our faith while we're going to well, where, where, we're gonna, where some of this origin or source or the marrow of, of deserting Jesus is, is flat out. Because in, in the moment, we just lack the courage to do what's right in the eyes of God. What, what Jesus is saying is, they're going to come in, they're going to arrest me. And every single one of you guys is going to turn tail and run like cowards. Because you're going to lose your spiritual courage. Now, there's a word of hope coming, so don't just... But, I, it, but remember, it takes courage to be a person who lives by faith. It takes courage to be a person who lives by faith. You're, you're not always going to be well-loved. You're not always going to be accepted. You're not always going to be... You know, you, sometimes you're going to be ridiculed and called names and etc., it's all part. It takes sometimes it takes courage. Sometimes it takes courage to just open up your mouth and say, "I'm a believer." You know, one of the one of the early stories that we hear at Hope Chapel was so we had this family who lived in town for a long time, and they were integrated into the community and that kind of stuff. And, and this particular woman served on one of the volunteer boards here in town, and so she was at one of their board meetings, 
And somehow or another, we were just very early on, first six months of meeting or whatever, back in 2002. And, and she's in the, at this board meeting, and somebody, in just tones of derision and, 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 you know, that kind of stuff, just said, can you believe that a church is meeting in a school? What kind of a church meets in a school, right? It was just this. And this woman had the courage to step up and say, that's where I go. Right? That's where I go. <laughs> right? And, and some of us were like, I, I keep my mouth, mouth shut. I ain't saying nothing. Right? You know? But sometimes it takes courage, right? I, I remember when Christina and I were, we'd been asked and we're feeling God's name to maybe be a part of starting something new after Sterling Baptist had decided not to continue anymore. You know, and, and they've been around for 30 years, and, but they had never outgrown a trailer that was designed to handle 30 people. So when they come along and say, hey, why don't you start something in our place? It's like, say, yeah, we've been beating our heads against the wall for 30 years. Why don't you start doing that, right? And then you start talking to some people around town, and, and, and people we knew, because we had kids in the school system, coached, all that kind of stuff. We say, you know, say, you know what? In our opinion, Sterling is a two-church town. It's St. Richard's is first church. Good luck, right? Good luck. And I got to tell you, I, we knew I, there was a part of me when we launched into this, I was fearful. What, what if this fails? What's that going to make us look like to all of our people knowing down? And sometimes it just takes courage to take the risk to do what God's asked you to do. And here are these guys, they lose their leader and they run for the hills. Now, there's, there's some other reasons and dynamics going on, but one of the things you're seeing here is that sometimes just the lack of courage, and, and I think one of the other things that comes out, and this is something I think about a lot as the pastor, is that I think sometimes our courage is derived from others. And so their courage was derived from, as long as he's out in front, man, we're following, right? But if he's gone, we're out of here. And, and I got to tell you, one of the things that breaks my heart is the number of people who have given up being a part of the church of God and being a part of the mission of God to reach a lost world because their, their pastor or some leader let them down. I, I, you know, I don't have the courage, I don't have the heart to do this stuff anymore because some leader let me down. Right? And, and I've got to tell you, you know, I, I, I'm susceptible to sin as well. I have no desire to do a spiritual face plant any time in my journey, right? But I have the potential to do that. And I got to tell you, I don't want any of you to leave if I screw up. Because I want you to be in love with Christ, and I want you to be in love with the mission of the church, which is to reach people who are far from God. And whether I mess up or not, I don't want that love to be impacted. I want you to have a courage to do what's right in the eyes of God that isn't dependent upon who I am, but it's based upon your relationship with God, Right? And, and so it's a huge word for us. But sometimes we just lack the courage to do what's right, right? And I could go on there. So have you seen yourself in any of these? It's just me up here, right? You, you, I know that none of this applies to any of you, right? You, you don't have struggles with any of this stuff. I know I'm being facetious. There's a word of hope, right? You know, listen, there, there are going to be times when we're just going to refuse to believe because we don't want to believe. That's going to happen to some of us, right? There's going to be ways in which we're, 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 we're going to take the good and we're going to let it become the enemy of the best. We're going to stop doing noble things for Christ because we're enjoying the stuff that he's given to us. There's going to be times when we just prefer our way over God's way. 
right? We're going to be susceptible to the fleshliness, to the sin that's in our lives. Sometimes we're just going to lack the courage, right? You know, somebody's going to say something, whatever, and we're just not going to do. And we're going to say, is that it? All hope's lost? Here, I want you to see something. Look at verse 27. It says, all of, all of you will run away because it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But he says, but after I've been resurrected, I'm going to meet all of you guys in Galilee. Story's not over yet. Even though you're going to run with, with your tails tucked between your legs and you're going to be embarrassed by what you do and you're going to be heartbroken about the way that you've deserted me, there, there, there's a new life on the other side. There's a new life on the other side. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Even Peter, I ain't going to desert you. I don't know about these rest of these guys, but I mean, I'm staying right here. There's no, I'm not going to be the last one. One, two, three. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy, right? And then Jesus is looking at him at the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and saying, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? There's, there's a story on the other side. There's a story on the other side of our spiritual desertions. And let that be a story of faithfulness that comes by forgiveness because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word today. Thanks for the disciples, you know, that we, we just see ourselves in them. And with that, we can learn a lot of things about working with you, walking with you. Father, I, I pray that this, this room would be full of people who do noble things for you. Father, I pray that this room would just be full of people who do noble things for you, things that people are talking about decades from now. For I prayed in Jesus' name, amen.